Hello, I'm Mallory Rubin. And I'm Van Lathan. Check out the Ringerverse podcast from The Ringer for all things superhero movies, nerd culture, and fandom entertainment. We have instant reviews and fun takes on all the latest news and more available now on Spotify. It's the Ringer NBA show presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs on FanDuel. Find out what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like three-minute markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available. And listen to the end of the episode for additional details. Must be 21 years and older. 18 and older in D.C. and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. This episode is brought to you by Arby's. Arby's better not catch you slacking on snacking with their new two-for-five-dollar chicken wraps. And your choice of ranch, barbecue, honey, mustard, and a bonus flavor called Incredible Value. You can't taste it, but boy, is it sweet. Arby's two-for-five-dollar chicken wraps are here for a limited time at participating locations. Visit an Arby's near you or order ahead on the Arby's app. Hello and welcome back to your NBA group chat. I am Justin Barrier. Joining me, Rob Mahoney, Big Wise. Welcome to the new year, my friends. Rob, how was your holiday? I barely made it. I got to be honest with you. There was a, there was a moment... In the week after Christmas, I think I was watching Heat Wizards, and it just totally broke me. You know, I, I, I was just looking at the court. Corey Kispert was the best guy on the floor by default, and I was wondering, what the hell was I doing with my life? How many points did Omer Yurt7 have? Too many. Too many points. <laughs> uh, man, I managed to shoehorn that one in. Waz, how was your holiday? Hey, man, uh, as a greedy bastard... The amount of grub that I ate that was just carbs, fat, mm. just not good for you, greasy. It was insane, and I enjoyed every minute of it. But I'm back to, you know, green juices, drinking electrolytes. I'm doing all the healthy stuff now that I'm back in L.A., the land of, you know, the very health conscious. Hollywood Waz is back. Exactly. <laughs> I like how you're both like, oh, man, it was so taxing, and Waz just ate a lot, and Rob watched bad basketball. <laughs> <laughs> no. Well, I also ate a lot, so that that's where we are. There you go. What uh, what tough lives we lead, you know? I know. Um, well, let's let's talk about that basketball over the break here, because we're gonna get into some of the major storylines going into this new year of NBA basketball. But first, I did want to talk about what just came because I feel like we're kind of coming out of the replacements era of the NBA, or at least I hope so. A lot of teams are down to like one replacement player or like maybe two players that you haven't heard of as opposed to the entire starting lineup. And so, uh, Rob, as we reflect on this momentous, what, couple weeks in the NBA, uh, like, what do you think about what just happened? Like, did you learn anything from these teams or these new players? Well, I don't think we can in good conscience sit here and pretend that all of this basketball mattered. Right. Like there was a lot of junk. There was a lot of caveating and asterisks. And how do, do we take these games seriously or those games seriously, considering how many guys were just out of the lineup? So the decision points on whether some of these games should have even happened was like, 
can we get enough guys from the nearest G League team to logistically make it here in time to play? Mm-hmm. So some of them we just have to throw out. But I think there are some cases where, for example, you look at what Jalen Brunson was doing in Dallas, especially with Luka Doncic out. You know, guys stepping into bigger roles. I think we can say confidently now with Brunson, a guy who I think we all thought pretty highly of to begin with. Mm-hmm. He's a guy who needs to get paid or or they need to trade, frankly. Like they need to invest in one way or another. So we're getting closure on some things like that. We're being reminded of who Kevin Porter Jr. and Christian Wood are when they storm out of a game at halftime, apparently. Um, and there's another there's another team, I think, and a couple of teams that I think by surviving some of their absences showed something, showed mm. some signs of life for the second half of the season. I think we can get into some of those teams later. Yeah, I have a confession to make. I am not as professional as Rob Mahoney, so when I watch a bunch of G-leaguers on both sides of the ball, I'm like, yeah, I'm out. Um, I, yeah. I, I feel like I just... We don't get paid to be G League experts, or at least I don't think I do. (laughs) So so I can't can't pretend that I watched a bunch of these games and was just like, oh, maybe this guy can, you know, fill in a role for eight minutes on a playoff team in the spring um, and the summer, right? Like, I, I can't pretend to have been doing that. I think the NBA, I will say this, I think the NBA did the right thing by just soldiering on. Right. By not forcing a bunch of postponements and, you know, mucking up the schedule any more than they needed to. I think this was the right decision. I think we can go in cleanly into the rest of the year. However, you know, and I think Varia was about to get into this. Usually we used Christmas to be the line of demarcation of, all right, now we can get serious about analyzing these teams. I don't know how we could do that given the disruptions that, you know, Omicron and Omarion did for the NBA uh, with the protocols and stuff. The cause for optimism is that Justin, as Justin alluded to, if you look at the data, it does look like we finally peaked in terms of the NBA cases. We're finally on a downward trend. We're finally, you know, hopefully going somewhere toward normalcy. Normalcy? Toward normalcy. Um, (laughs) Where we don't have to watch G-Leaguers on both sides of the ball. And while we're at it, can we revisit my contract so I don't have to watch two-way G-Leaguers on both sides? Can I get on whatever deal Waz is on, please? Well, after the normalcy, I think we have to replace you with a (laughs) G-Leaguer. That's fair. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the big question here is as an entertainment product, was it worthwhile to just power through and hope that like, I guess during this time that nobody was really going to check. And I mean, then this is actually a good question to ask you guys because you were spending a lot of time with relatives and friends. Uh, like Rob, were, were the Dallas people in your life just like psyched to fire up the Jalen Brunson experience? <laughs> I think there's a lot of checking out right now in general. Um, and that's the weird thing about using Christmas as the day, as Waz was saying, of demarcation because it is that. It's a big opening for the kind of next stage of the NBA calendar in most seasons. But... I don't think we need to pretend that even in normal times, people are watching a ton of NBA basketball from December 26th to January 10th. You know, it's kind of a, an in-between stage to begin with. There's this big opening exhibition, the five-day slate with, of Christmas Day games that this year very few people seemingly watched. It was one of the NBA's worst turnouts in over a decade uh, in terms of the ratings on those games. But this period is always a little slow. This period, I don't think there's like maximum NBA investment. And this year, just especially, especially slow and especially checked out, I think, for a lot of people who are wisely gorging on carbs and fats and eating cookies and whatnot. Like, that's what this time is supposed to be about anyway, if we're being real. Riding your horses. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And Justin, I'm not going to lie. Part of me... 
again, maybe this is just the lazy worker in me, right? I'm just like, we got too many damn games. You know what I mean? Like, if if this huge, if we could go through a three-week portion of an NBA calendar and feel like none of this actually mattered, right? Like, is any of this going to have any actual bearing on who ends up in the playoffs and what makes a good team and, you know, player development? If we could go through three weeks straight of just being like, did that happen? Did that matter? Yeah. Like, maybe the season is just too fucking long, man. I think that's the good question to be asking here. Like, what are the long-term ramifications that basically signaling to your audience that, like, we didn't actually really care for a couple weeks here? Um, and, like, uh, is it going to have any sort of diminishing returns or long-term effect on, like, the viewing public? I definitely made the case last year when they rushed up the season that there was going to be a lot of bad basketball. And while it made prudent business sense, I did wonder if there was going to be kind of a chilling effect in the long run, basically, like, putting out an inferior product and what that suggests long-term, especially considering how much the NBA has been hand-wringing over the past couple of years about, uh, like, losing television subscribers and people cutting the cord, et cetera, et cetera. Et cetera. I wonder that again, um, whether or not this is the same thing. It's only going to compound that issue from last year. On the other hand, maybe like just having something is better than nothing. And I do think it's convenient that after we're coming out of this little period, there's already newsers and stories about midseason tournaments. So I wonder if like the actual conspiracy, this is probably conspiracy theory, but I also wonder if it's actually the plan here, where it's like, let's just get through this stretch and this will actually be a way to Trojan horse in something to plop in the middle of the season. And that actually settles all of the issues we're talking about. Well, if there's one positive to come out of this like period of in incredible tumult in the NBA in terms of the schedule. I would hope that it's at the end of it, the stakeholders look at this and kind of disregard the sanctity of 82 games, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, we've already seen teams finish seasons without playing 82. We may see it again this year if they're not able to reschedule all the games they need to and fit them in and, you know, with future uh, suspensions and cancellations of games, we'll see. I kind of think this year they'll get there, but hopefully they can reach the point where they realize doesn't really matter if it's 82 or not for record book reasons we already have a bunch of kind of janky seasons on the books what's the, what is it really going to change that much if we shift to 72 or 66 or whatever the optimal number of games is or the optimal format in terms of midseason tournament or whatnot to to get a little more life into what you know what is usually the doldrums of the nba calendar and honestly, man, the season more and more as the years go by feel like a lengthy freaking vacation almost, damn near. The way some of these teams play, the way they're conservative with injuries, the way like it just seems so leisurely because it's so freaking long. And then part of it too, like when you watch teams like the Warriors play, where I feel like they're at a decided regular season advantage because they do seem to be going way harder than everybody. Like it just it just feels different watching them play their effort level. And you know, it remains to be seen whether there'll be a cost to that in the postseason, right? Um, remember all the hand wringing we did when they won 73 games and we were just like, yo, maybe they wore down in the playoffs because they treated the regular season with some type of respect and seriousness. <laughs> as like antithetical as that may seem, like it seemed like they kind of got punished for going so hard. But it's like watching, you know, we're going to talk about the Hawks, watching them play against the Blazers without C.J. McCollum, without Dame Lillard, who are easily the 
Blazers' two best players, and just give up 140 points to those cats. It's like, what are we doing here? Yeah. You know, uh, like, who is, it, it, who, who's advocating for 82 games at this point besides the owners? That's what I'm saying. Like, And also, if you look at some of the attendance numbers, I'm just mm. like, I mean, are y'all really making that much money off of these home games, guys? Like... Obviously, the TV deals, might, the local TV deals as far as the amount of product that they promise their TV partners as far as the amount of games, et cetera. Obviously, that would need to be tweaked and adjusted. But, like, I'm watching the damn Wizards game the other night. That shit was completely empty. There was nobody yeah. there. So it's like, how much bread are you guys actually earning on these regular season games that increasingly people realize they just don't matter? Not just in the sense that... They don't make a huge impact on who's getting to the playoffs. They don't matter in the sense of y'all not playing y'all best players. It's just like, what are we doing here? That's what I think I've learned from the holiday. It's like so such a big chunk of the season is just so inconsequential. Where are we on the midseason tournament? Like, Waz, are you excited about plopping that into, let's say, this period? Because the proposed format, just based on what ESPN is reporting, is it'd be like a December pool play situation. And I guess there would be like some sort of quarters, semis, finals leading into Christmas Day game. So it would be more of like a prelude to Christmas to build excitement. Like, does that like, does that get you going? I need to know about the stakes and I need to know about the level of buy-in. Um, I remember when we tweaked the all-star rules, uh, and w- what's the name of the free, the, the Elam, the Elam ending, Elam yeah. ending. Yeah. So people made a big deal about the Elam ending, but really, if you watch the game, all it was is that they tried hard, <laughs> like Giannis <laughs> and LeBron and, and Steph, like they played as hard as they could in this exhibition game. And that's why it was exciting that's why it felt consequential. So I wonder what the level of buy-in, if the main guys have a buy-in and the stakes are high enough like that it seems like these guys care, then yeah, I'm interested. If it's just another thing where it's just like, well, do we really want to get Trey Young hurt in this game? Do we really want to get Klay Thompson, bring him back during this tournament? Do we really want to? If it's going to be one of those, then I don't give a damn. And that's why, like, whatever the incentives are for winning it, they have to be player-oriented, right? It has to be player bonuses. It has to be something that's going to drive the talent to want to participate, not, oh, your team gets an extra draft pick. Or, right. you know, like, that kind of stuff never really made sense because Waz is, is right on it. Like, you have to incentivize the players to want to give a shit about this thing. And I think you can. I think there is there is a realm of possibility in which the players get super invested in this over time. But you have to grow it. And the only way you're going to do that is by introducing it and getting us into the process of a differently, you know, a a regular season that's structured differently than it is now. I do want to say when the best players in the league are playing their best, I know that sounds ridiculous. Like when I watch Suns uh, Warriors, when I watch Warriors Jazz, when I watch Nets versus uh, Bucks, who like obviously those teams always want to kill each other. That product is incredible. Hmm. When I watched the Hawks and Blazers last night, <laughs> that's not an incredible TV product. That's not something anybody wants to watch. So I, st- I still believe when the best players in this league are incentivized, like we see every single year in the playoffs, without fail, like we see certain national TV regular season games, that's an incredible experience, an incredible product. When it's like, eh, does this really matter? 
not so much. Can I put on my optimism hat for a second? My of positivity course. hat? It's wow. Sp- spinny this is thing rare for at Justin the top. Very I know. Y'all. I know. <laughs> New year. Uh, a midseason tournament seems awesome. <laughs> like, if it works out, this would be incredible. I do think, like, you guys bring up a lot of good points. I think a lot of teams are going to gamify whatever rules are handed down, as we've seen time and time again with the adjustments to the rule book. And I'm sure there are going to be teams like the Spurs who are going to, like, take this entire team, uh, thing off and then, like, uh, worry more about, uh, you know, games in March in order to make the playoffs, et cetera, et cetera. But, like, if people do buy in, this is incredible. Uh, I'm a little worried about the timing of it, though. Like, it feels a little soon. Like, do teams even know who they are at this point earlier in the season? Uh, and won't this just make the the January, February, March part of the season more of a trudge whereas right now we have like the last month or so of the season heading into the playoffs is kind of a muck because we already know where things are i do wonder if teams go all out for this play like what are we calling a mid-season tournament i do wonder if there are ramifications on the regular season product uh even sooner which just puts us back into the same spin cycle yeah i think you almost don't want to use it leading into Christmas so much as you want to use Christmas as a launching off point. Like maybe you finish all your pool play before Christmas and that's like the first week that the games really matter. And you can cherry pick your matchups based on what matchups are most interesting. You know, where you have the youngest stars, where you have the contenders, you know, facing off earlier than someone expected. That kind of thing makes sense to me. Or or maybe that's, maybe Christmas is the semifinals or or just the finals, but then you're only doing one game instead of five which uh, there's a clear revenue cost to that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and what I would be most interested in something like this, again, if there's actual buyouts, if I mean, I'm buying, if the players actually feel incentivized to go as hard as they possibly can. Like, I want to see Grizzlies versus Lakers. Grizzlies mm-hmm. have been clearly a better team than the Lakers this season, right? But if I get into a tournament setting where... You know, in a world where AD isn't hurt for the 1,200th time in his career. I want to see that. I want to be like, all right, yeah, maybe the Lakers are as trash as everybody believes they are. And Memphis actually is ascending. I think those kind of questions can be answered in a midseason form that, 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 like Rob said, it propels the rest of the season as far as storylines and how we're thinking about these teams heading into the postseason. So, yeah, obviously... I want to see consequential basketball all year round, and if this see if this midseason tournament is a way to do that, I'm I'm all in. And if you make the players care, you will force every team to care. You know, mm. like team like you're saying, Justin. Maybe teams like the Spurs would theoretically want to sit out or not really care about it. But if every player has a chance to make millions of dollars by playing well in this tournament, they're not going to want to come play for you if you're going to deny them that. You know? Yeah. I'm just picturing the type of trophy we're going to use for this because the Summer League one is like the most basic like copy and paste from from clip art sort of thing where it's just like a ball and it's silver and whatever. And uh, I could see that being just like a, a really interesting photo op. You long, know? long as we name the trophy after Dino Raja, Tony Kukoc, I'll be happy. That's wow. This. Just a, the real <laughs> act of six months ago. <laughs> a side swipe from a year ago. Nice. This episode is supported by State Farm. Man, I remember when I first got into a car accident, it was pure frustration because I did not have State Farm. And now that I do have State Farm, it is 
an exclamation of pure joy. But the only words that you need to remember are, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm has options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Learn more at statefarm.com. This episode is brought to you by Arby's. It's 3 p.m. and dinner is still hours to come. Maybe lunch didn't quite hit the spot. That's where the new two-for-five-dollar chicken wraps from Arby's come in. Available in ranch, barbecue, and honey mustard. They're perfect for the afternoon snack attack or as an add-on to your meal. Arby's two-for-five-dollar chicken wraps are here for a limited time at participating locations. Visit an Arby's near you or order ahead on the Arby's app. This episode is brought to you by Visible Wireless. Want a wireless provider that always brings its A-game? Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon as low as $25 a month every month, taxes and fees included. And as if that wasn't already a huge win, you could use promo code RINGER20 to receive $20 off your first month just for listening to us talk about basketball. Not bad, right? You don't need more than one line of wireless to save. Just switch to Visible at Visible.com and use promo code RINGER20. For data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. The Visible monthly rate is $25 per month. All right, why don't we move along here? Uh, Let's talk about some of the storylines that Waz was alluding to here as we kind of reset going into the new year. Um, Let's let's go off script a little bit because I want to talk about some of the West teams because Waz already kind of started the ball here. Um, We have about four or so questions here talking about the biggest things that are going on in the NBA, non-trade related, because at this point we don't have a lot of scuttlebutt going on, though I'm sure we'll get in a fake trade here uh, now and then. Um, Let's start with this question, which non-Warriors, non-Suns, non-Jazz West team do you have the most confidence in? Um, Rob, where are you? Who's who's like, I guess, number four? I guess let's, let's first say we're assuming those are the best three teams in the West. By far, yeah. Okay. Um, so who's number four in the West? Well, while we're kind of renegotiating my contract on this podcast, how much am I allowed to talk about the Grizzlies in a given week? Because I already I already did this on Bill's pod. I already sang their praises. Am I allowed to dig into Grizzlies basketball again? Keep going. You're allowed to do whatever you want on Bill's pod. That's in, that's in everyone's contract. <laughs> well, I think it has to be Memphis. I mean, just by the big picture indicators of where these teams are, there's not that many teams that even have positive point differentials right now. And it's those top three and then it's Memphis by a wide margin. And then it's like Dallas and San Antonio somehow kicking around. Uh, the Grizzlies are really good. John Moran has been unbelievable. So good that the conversation has shifted from, is he an all-star to like, what other awards can we get him in on? Like, is he an all-star starter? Mm -hmm. Is he going to be most improved? Is he going to be fifth place on some people's MVP ballots? Like he's been that good to get into those conversations. Uh, And so I think it has to be them, just given the level of star power at the top, the depth that they have. I have more faith in what they're doing on a night-to-night basis than anyone else. Uh, And a lot of that has to do with how they play when they're missing three guys. You know, like they just play better than almost any team in the NBA when they have guys out with injury or COVID or all the complications we're dealing with right now. You know, I I got into a bit of a kerfuffle with Memphis Grizzlies Twitter um, because I was watching them play very early on in the season. And I'm like, yo, this team reminds me of the Warriors last year where they have one guy who is insane, 
John Morant, Steph Curry, which I thought I was just comparing John Morant to Steph Curry, which you would think is a is a nice thing. And a bunch of men, right? And I mm. do want to apologize to one player in particular, and that's Bane, for sure, right? Um, he's not some, like, flash in the pan, killing bench units. Like, against legitimate starters, legitimate NBA defenses, this guy is creating offense. His jump shot is real. Um, dudes have a problem staying in front of him. Like, he's a legitimate two-guard. There's no two ways about it. Like, I owe that guy an apology. I still don't think, you know, Triple J is a big enough one-on-one offensive threat in a playoff setting that makes this team, like, for real, for real, right? Where I think, like, they have the chance to come at the top three in the West. But I do think Bain has been a revelation for me. I was completely wrong on that guy. So... Sorry to Bane and nobody else on that team. <laughs> that, that being said, I think, yeah, like you said, in a playoff setting, John Moran is so good. He's so, like, singular in how any defense that you throw in front of him, even when you know what he wants to do, you can't stop him. And in a playoff game, that's a trump card that not many teams possess. Again, you know, we got to throw the Lakers in there. Um... Because they're the freaking Lakers. And LeBron has looked amazing in the past few games, right? It's like, well, LeBron's still really freaking good. But (laughs) they got nothing else. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, AB's hurt right now. Russ, the Russ fit is still... I don't even think we could call it clunky at this point. It just doesn't work. Can I just straight up... That I would love to do a last duel versus where it's like you versus Memphis Grizzlies Twitter, where we find out <laughs> what the actual origin and what actually happened there, because this is <laughs> this is really becoming like an existential part of this podcast. <laughs> well, you know, I, look, last year was the Suns. The Suns fans were mad at me because I thought the Lakers would beat them if they were healthy, which is like crazy. You're crazy mm-hmm. for saying that. And, um, yeah, this year I'm just like, look, I I think John Moran is incredible. I don't know, because we've seen this so many times over the years. Like, think about Derrick Rose at his peak with the Bulls, right? Like, they looked so much better than the Heat. I think they beat them three out of four games that season that um, Derrick Rose won the MVP. They also have five games in the playoffs, straight up, because nobody but D. Rose could do anything against an elite NBA defense, mm-hmm. right? And the Heat were that. They were elite on that end. Um, and so I'm always skeptical of these one-man crews and what they can do against set defenses in the playoffs. And I think, you know, I think it was fair to be questioning whether Desmond Bain could kick ass in the playoffs. I don't know if that's some crazy thing to ask yourself, right? Yeah. But I think this season, it's been proven, and Memphis is... They do remind me of that sh- those Chicago teams, those tip Chicago teams in the sense that no matter who's out there, they're playing, their effort level and execution is at a ridiculously high level, which you got to give credit to the coach for that. Well, Waz, we're in 2022 now. Do you have an early <laughs> prediction for which fan base you'll be beefing with in this <laughs> calendar year? I will say this, it will probably one be one in flyover country because that seems to be the trend with me and beefs with fan bases. Um, they're not part of the coastal elites like I am. That's that's usually the trend. Well, Cleveland, look out. Yeah, no, Utah is off the board. I'm sorry. Like <laughs> they're very much shaping up to be the team that disappoints and, and Watts has something to say about them. Um, well, I will push back 
slightly on what you said. I think it was fair to raise those questions about the Grizzlies going into the season, but I do think they've alleviated pretty much most yeah. of the concerns about like the supporting cast around John Moran. I mean, Moran is incredible. Like he almost floats in a way that I, I don't know if I've seen a player do the, the like his ability to just like stay in the air and draw contact or like finish over much bigger players is like downright like Marvel-esque. Like he is like a superhero at certain points. And it's just like incredible to watch him do that. But like just, they're just so deep with so many quality guys. Bane is a prime example of that. I think Jackson's been pretty good. I don't think he's been uh clear cut number two all-star level right. that I think a lot of people expected. Right. I think he's been pretty good defensively. And if there is a concern here, I think it is probably on the defensive end where I think they're uh, more like, I think 11th or something like that. Um And so... I don't know, like on the one hand, they are deep, but they're also young and they're still kind of like figuring things out, which I think probably leads back to a Lakers discussion because I think like LeBron, if anything, you have the most confidence in him than any other player or team in the entire world. Look, if you give me a healthy AD, which again is never a given, and LeBron showing us like, yeah, when I really want to go hard, I'm still one of the best players that are out here. In a playoff setting, I'm like, man, that's hard to go up against, right? Um, for anybody, that's a tough proposition there. Uh, but, you know, credit to the Grizzlies, man. Again, um, Dylan Brooks, who's been out, came back and is out again. He's looked good when he's come back. Um, and I think even, you know, going back to last year, he's shown that he's somebody who could soak up possessions as far as a ball handler, pick and roll operator, one-on-one -on -one operator. Like they they do have depth um, as far as it's not gonna just be Ja Morant, pick and roll, pick and roll, pick and roll, and Ja put us on the back for sure. Um, I don't know, will it be dynamic enough against the best teams? I, I don't know, I, I'd still like to see a little bit more. And that's not just me just being like, oh, I'm stubborn. I think mm. they've shown a lot this season, especially while Job was out. I'm not one of those people who were dumb enough to think like, oh, are the Grizzlies more effective without Job? No, mm -hmm. you're not. <laughs> but they've been impressive. I think you're right to be a little bit skeptical because the best case version of this is Brooks and Bain are giving them just enough offensively where, you know, Jaron Jackson Jr. receding isn't as big a deal. Right. You know, him being invisible for a little bit isn't as big of a deal the more realistic scenario is the, the one we've seen this season, which is when they do have all their guys, there's a little less clarity in terms of who should be shooting and taking over when and doing what. And Dylan Brooks is just like a constant chaotic force on a team shot selection sometimes. So you have to deal with all that in finding the balance of this team, but the talent is there. The depth is there as we, we've already sung Jaws praises enough. He's unbelievable. And if Bain can be like a more solidly number two or number three type scorer over the course of his career, I think that changes a lot of their trajectory. And uh, that's where I wonder, I don't know if this is like number inception because he wears 22, <laughs> but I see a little Michael Red sometimes when I watch Desmond Bain. A little like, he's not an explosive athlete, but yet he gets by you sometimes. And he yeah. has a, like a solid enough jumper and he's he's physically strong enough to probably be a better defender than Red ever was. But I wonder if he has that kind of potential in him. 
So our friend Chris Harrington of the Daily Memphis uh, Memphian was going through some comps in, in a recent piece of his that I was reading, uh, and he brought up Hershey Hawkins, which was like way before yeah. my time. So I don't really have a clear one to one there. But he also brought up Eric Gordon, like if Eric Gordon were healthy oh, yeah. throughout his career, and I think that's that's a really good comp there because Gordon was primarily a shooter, he came in as a shooter, but he could do a little bit with the ball. He could play make, uh, can create off the dribble. Also has like stubby arms, so I think there's like a visual comp there yeah. that really makes sense. I think that is a clear path for Bain there. Um, but I think like, so Memphis is kind of the objective choice. I think yeah. there's just so yeah. much evidence to suggest that they are a very, very good team, especially considering the injuries and COVID stuff that they faced. Um, is there any other choice or we at the Lakers at this point? Is this Occam's Lakers? The, the reason why I'm at the Lakers is because this reminds me of so many of those part two Cavs teams that just looks so freaking terrible in the regular season. Like, the, and again, that, that was the Eastern Conference, like not really strong conference and not really a lot of competition. But in the regular season, they would look so awful. And then, you know, the, you know, the five-man player of the month unit Hawks. And then we talk <laughs> ourselves into the Raptors and we and be like, they're going to knock those guys off. Clearly, they're just way better in the regular season. It makes no sense that we would think the Cavs could do anything. That's what this Lakers team remind me of. It's just like, this is so underwhelming on a night-to-night -night basis. But yet, somehow the playoffs would come around and the Hawks were getting their heads caved in. And so were the Toronto Raptors. And look, I don't know that anybody on those teams was as dynamic as John Morant. Hell no, they were not. Um, or as dynamic as Luka Doncic is, right? Like, no, they were not. But, like, this Lakers team just reminds me of that. Just, like, a bunch of veterans, a bunch of players that, like, kind of make sense, but not really. And it just looks nasty on a night-to-night -night basis. But it's like, I don't know when LeBron is slowing this shit down to 80 possessions a game. And he's dictating, like, every single part of the game against your ass? I don't know. That still seems like a tough proposition to beat. Well, especially compared to these other middling Western Conference teams that just haven't figured it out. Like, they all have problems. The Clippers, the Mavs, the Nuggets, they all have real serious structural issues going on. Mm. To the point that I think it has to be the Lakers. <laughs> and to the point, I, like, we're kind of in moot point territory. With, with if, if the fourth team is not going to be the Grizzlies or the Lakers, none of these other teams have a chance of beating two of the Warriors, Suns, and Jazz. Like, they're just not going to get through two no rounds chance. of that. Is this Lakers team the least fun LeBron team in history? I fucking hate watching them because every game is a slog and it ultimately comes down to LeBron playing bully ball or making like <laughs> deep threes off the dribble that he has to take because otherwise it would be like counting on THT to score 13 points that night as opposed to his usual seven. You know, you know why I tend to agree with you? Um, although, again, like once they traded Kyrie off of the... the part two Cavs team, I was like, ugh, this is, this is tough. You know, it's, it's like, ugh. But, <laughs> but part of the reason why I agree with you is like the previous iteration of this Lakers team, we could talk about the baby Lakers, which was intriguing because it was like all of these young guys plus LeBron. Yeah. There was there also Schadenfreude there where it was right. like LeBron signed up for that and he kind of got his just desserts after going to a million finals in a row. Right. And so that was interesting in and of itself. And I think what was underrated about the the iteration before this is like there was a lot of movement 
between guys like Kuzma, guys like Caruso, guys like KCP. These guys moved around a lot without the ball. They were incredible in transition. So many freaking just straight up deep balls to people like AD and LeBron. Like they would throw lobs to Dwight. Like the team, the offense didn't look just so grounded. They just to a halt. It's like Justin, mm-hmm. you're right. It's nasty to mm-hmm. watch on a night. It's like Westbrook can't dribble by anybody. So what he does, he just posts people up. It's like it's so mellow isos. It's it's nasty. And yeah, I think you're right. This is the nastiest LeBron team to watch <laughs> in a while, man. Look, as someone who had to watch a lot of this footage for a story last season, I have to stand up for the first and second year LeBron Cavs teams, which interesting. Were, at, at least this is modern basketball. You know, mm. like it, it, it's complicated, but anything is better than 2003 and four era. Grind oh, you talking out about the Sasha ball. Pavlovich? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, ta- I'm talking. I'm talking Luke Jackson. I'm talking Ricky oh, Davis. Like oh, those era oh. teams, really, really rough. That's true. I, I think part of it is just like how much they're just kind of ruining the back end of LeBron's career. It's just like they're really, they did this to themselves too. Like they really didn't have to bring Russell Westbrook into this whole thing. They could have just kept it going and like no. let LeBron go off on like, on a tuffet, like on a, on like a gilded pillow or something like that. Instead is just like, they're just dragging him through the streets. Be like, all right, let's, let's get there. One more finals. My guy It's just like, it's really brutal to watch. And I'm someone who's loved watching LeBron throughout his career. It's just, I don't know, man, it's, it's tough to tune in. Um, Let's flip though now to the Eastern Conference because let's talk. Let's talk about something good. You know, let's talk about a positive story here because the Bulls, out of nowhere, are still atop the Eastern Conference standings, twenty-five and ten. Um, I think we've had probably three discussions at this point about whether or not the Bulls are serious contenders, but I think this time is actually the time to do it. One because they're kind of riding a high here. Uh, having powered through some recent COVID absences and Caruso absences uh, and the two DeMar DeRozan buzzer beaters, which were were great stories amid the muck of, of the replacement era. But also we're starting to get guys back for some of the major contenders. Kyrie Irving is expected to debut tonight on Wednesday. Uh, the Bucks are kind of powering through. Even Joel Embiid is starting to play like an MVP candidate. So I do wonder, Rob, like how serious for the millionth time, but maybe the last time are the Chicago Bulls. I think they're fairly serious. And I think what has me convinced is that even at this stage in the season, they still have a pretty elite half-court offense. You know, if it was just getting out in transition and running, I think that would seem a little flimsy for a playoff setting. And the fact that it's DeMar DeRozan fueling the half-court offense, I think might understandably give some people pause given his playoff history. But I'm kind of buying it. Like the way he's playing, the way they fill in around him, the fact that some other guys aren't even playing that well yet, you know, I'm sure we'll get into Vooch and talk about him. Like he has potential to play much better than he has. I think there's between that and their ability to potentially make a move to make their team even better. This feels like a, a pretty legit contender to me. That said, the you know the Nets and the Bucks are just really yeah. formidable opponents, and so it's like, yes, you're a contender as third in that mix, but like, what does that really mean? You know, it, it's tough because you got to go back to. Vucevic is my last line of defense against Giannis Antetokounmpo. Mm. It's like, at the end of the day, I keep coming back to that, right? Um, Who on this team is going to deal with Giannis? And I think in the playoffs, that was the number one problem for everybody the Bucs faced. It was 
the Giannis issue. It's yep. like, what do you do with this guy? Even the Suns, to a certain extent, where it felt like, hey, Aiden's doing a pretty decent job. And as the series wore on, Giannis, on a bad leg, by the way, a bad wheel, just started dominating that matchup. And we don't think Aiden is a slouch in any in any way as far as defensively. So with the Bulls, it's like, man, are they going to be able to get enough stops against the Bucks when they get really going downhill and they have all of their guys? And then, of course, Kyrie's back. I, I definitely don't think they're going to guard the Nets when Kyrie, KD, and James Harden get that thing rolling. So I wonder if they make moves, you know, uh, before the deadline to bring in some wing depth, maybe some heft in order to deal with the problems that they face in guys like KD and Giannis. Because those are the number one questions in the East, right? Um, and I think the the Bucks and the, the Nets are sort of, they only think about each other, right? It's like we keep Blake Griffin around because historically he's done a decent job against Giannis, right? Um, it's very, very generous um, of you, Waz. <laughs> I'm just saying, you know, like, like all things considered, obviously nobody can freaking yeah. stop Giannis. But I think that, you know, the Nets even, I mean, excuse me, not the Nets, the Bucks, even though they let P.J. Tucker go, I think part of their thinking was always like, what are we going to do against guys like KD in the playoffs, right? And the type of people that they brought in. Um, I don't think the Bulls even come into that consideration. They just don't think the Bulls can stop them. It hasn't helped that a lot of the defensive stoppers that they've added to this team in order to kind of plug some of the holes they have in this roster are just dropping like flies. Like Patrick Williams is out. Yeah, now Javante Green is out. Alex Caruso is out. He's supposed to come back soon. But like those are the guys they were hoping in order to complement some of the offensive juice that they have there. I and mean, I do think they're like kind of coming into this existential question here where it's like, we have some of these vets. We need to prove to Levine that we can make a splash in the playoffs. Do we swing for the fences? Do we trade a Patrick Williams or some picks and lean more veteran? Or do we actually think about the long road ahead and don't do that and actually just go with the season, have a good time and then worry about the rest later. I think, I think it's a really important question in the trajectory to determine like, are they going to be this one season wonder or this, is this going to be a team with staying power beyond the season? I, I get why that question is coming up. And I know you can kind of split the difference sometimes with this stuff, like the warriors are doing where you have some young guys and you have your veterans. But to me, this was asked and answered when they traded for Vucevic. Like they yeah. got on the Vucevic DeRozan timeline you can hold on to your young guys if you want, but like even as someone who likes Patrick Williams, he might not be a meaningful playoff performer for three years, you know? Yeah. And, you know, and the V question to me was always a question of, are the Bulls going to offer him the five-year 200 mil or are they not? Right? And... If you're the Bulls, I'm not making no decisions based on Zach Levine. I'm gonna offer that man 220 something million dollars, and he gonna sit his ass down and be in <laughs> Chicago. That's it, right? And so I think you should be operating um, with the sense of look. If I offer this guy the most amount of money possible, which shows him like we think you're a franchise guy, we think you're one of the elites in the league. We're gonna pay you and reward you that way. And you know, look what we did by bringing in these guys who have clearly improved the roster, like. Lonzo, Caruso, um, and DeRozan, who all came in this offseason, were Bulls acquisitions. All of them considered big-ass money at the time those deals were signed, and it's paying dividends. So it's like, look, just give us a chance to keep doing this, building upon what we do. We're getting you whole as far as financially, 
and ride this thing on out. And yeah, if it comes to moving a younger, y'all know I, I'm king. Move the young guy. Get him out of here. Ship like, his ass out. Like, Waz, all teams ship his ass ship out. Ship him out. <laughs> ship his ass out. Get Andrew Bynum the hell up out of here with DJ Kid. Like, and here's the thing, like, you're 25 and 10, and we saw in the playoffs last year, you, when you're that close, you could be at a razor's edge of getting to the freaking finals. Just look at the Phoenix Suns last year. Two wins away from the finals. Nobody before the season or going into the postseason, save for Rob Mahoney, thought that they had a realistic chance of winning the championship. And look how close they came to doing that. Granted, it's because of injuries, it's because of luck and whatever, but that's that's sports. You got to be in it to win it. You got to put yourself in position to do that. And when you get this close, you're obviously, you know, of a high quality team. If you can improve upon this roster to put yourself in position to capitalize on some bad luck on other teams' part, I think you got to do that. And especially for the, I mean, Patrick Williams, come on. We're not talking about trading Zion Williamson here. You know, like, the Lakers did okay with Andrew Bynum. I'll just mention you know, that worked out. I will say the Lakers I mean, he played their one of those best finals. when Andrew Bynum yeah. was not playing, honestly. Whenever they tried to do Powell and Bynum at the same time with Lamar, it was very clunky and nasty. They played their best mm-hmm. without Bynum, but that's neither here nor there. Yeah. We'll, we'll get that back in 2001 or something. Um, <laughs> uh, do you think it's going to be uncomfortable this offseason when the Bulls hand out a max or a super max and it's not to their best player? Like, I have to say, the Levine DeRozan thing has worked out way better than I ever assumed it would. Do we think that that partnership, the dueling banjo effects, has long-term sustainability? I mean, it's hard to imagine them fitting together any better than they have, but Levine can be a better player. Like, he still has room to grow, room to evolve, and Mm -hmm. I mean, God knows, DeMar's been changing his game over the last five years more than a lot of veterans we've ever seen. So the idea that they could find even more synergy I think is somewhat realistic. Like, I think they can still find ways to tinker and evolve and grow as a pairing and as a tandem. And I'm not so sure that DeRozan is their best player. Like, he's Mm, awesome, and he's, like, front and center because of what he does. But to be a shooter like Zach Levine who can play off the ball and be as flexible as he is, that might be more valuable to a team than what DeRozan does. Yeah, and I think their games are actually pretty complementary of each other in the sense that, you know, DeRozan in San Antonio made himself into a guy who can play make. That wasn't even what he did. He was just a straight up hired gun damn near, you know, back in the days in Toronto. And so Zach Levine is not yet, he can make that first easy read. He doesn't make the sort of way tougher reads, the pass before the pass type of stuff. I don't think he's of that level yet. And I think DeRozan is closer to doing that. And I think... Levine's gravity off the ball and his movement helps with what DeRozan's trying to do in the mid-range, in pick and roll, right? Like, I think it frees him up to have a guy who's that dangerous off the ball. I think they're complimenting each other. I think where the rubber, you know, meets the road is like, are these guys going to guard enough, man? Like, like again, and I hate to sound like a freaking purist with this, but like, look, if, if your three best guys have to play together, and it is DeRozan, it is Levine, and it's Vooch. That's where I get worried about. I think on offense, they're fine. Like, DeRozan gets to his spots. Levine is the hell of a shooter. When he needs to, he can be a one-on-one guy. He's turned himself into a guy who gets to the cup all the time as well. 
I, I think on offense, they're fine. You know, right now they're fifth in offensive efficiency. I think in defense, when teams are able to game plan for what your weaknesses are on a night-to-night -night basis and pinpoint it, you know, and just hit that thing with a needle, I, mm. I just, I don't know. It was tough watching the Magic game the other night when you saw Franz Wagner and Wendell Carter Jr. kind of thriving in a new environment, just wondering if, like, those guys were in place of Vooch and wondering, like, what could have been. I know Rob is just, like, ready to just shoot this down there, but Wagner has been pretty incredible as a rookie. Well, you're pitting my appreciation for Franz Wagner against <laughs> my appreciation of Nikola Vucevic, so it's tough. But, I mean... It was tough watching the Magic game the other day. Incredible evergreen statement this season. <laughs> yeah. Would not recommend watching Orlando Magic basketball. They're frisky, uh, though. They're, I mean, they're trying. You know, Tim Frazier, back lot, and better than ever. Yeah. They got a lot of hardship guys in there. Um, I, think, I do think Vooch has not been great, but how many times have we seen in the playoffs and lamented oh, this team just needs like a pressure release big because mm. their guys are getting doubled and swarmed and shaded against I think that's the value you're hoping from him. You're hoping for floor spacing, pressure release. And the last time he was in the playoffs against a very different version of the Bucs, uh, a much less confident one, he was kind of awesome. It was in the bubble. It was different. Again, putting up numbers for a Magic team that was never going to win. But I think he could help them. I think he can be a real asset in a playoff series uh, or hopefully multiple for the Bulls. Right. Right. I'll just say, circling back to the DeRozan-Levine thing, only one of them is going to make all-star starter and those type of things, I think, are going to matter long term. I don't think it makes a difference this season. Obviously, they're on the same page and they're thriving offensively. I just, I do wonder, like, just the personalities and, and the chemistry and whatnot, what goes on there when DeRozan is front and center of this Bulls resurgence. Just saying. Well, apparently, DeMar DeRozan might make it at guard despite never playing guard this <laughs> season. The fact so that that's four yeah. now. Yeah. Congrats. Let's uh, let's stay in the East just briefly here. Um, this is a bit of a two-hander because these are two teams kind of making waves for vastly different reasons. Uh, what's more likely the Cavs finish in the top six or the Hawks miss the playoffs? And was this one is all for you, my friend. Um, I, I look, I think that I think the Cavs it's more likely that they make the sixth seed than the Hawks miss the playoffs. But the Hawks thing is, we, we, we've we reached DEFCON level um, here. Travis Schlenk goes on a radio show and says, maybe I shouldn't have brought all these cats back? Like that- Unreal. I mean, if, Unreal. If, if, if that's not like an indictment of what they're doing this season, it's a lot. And you know, there's so much going on, right? Like they've had so many injuries. They've had so much of the COVID stuff hit them. But, you know, most importantly, it's just like they should be better than the 27th best defense in the NBA. I think the theory of this team coming into the season was that the season turned around last year when they became an, a league average defense. When they were hovering around 14 through 17 on defense and, you know, they obviously could score. You know, the good news is... They're a top five NBA offense, which is great. Everybody wants a top five NBA offense, but the, it's just been so bad. And the bottom line is, I don't, you can't chalk it up to talent. Look, when, and again, you, the theory coming in, a Congo in the playoffs looked amazing on defense, right? In rim protection and switching out onto smaller guys on the perimeter. He looked like, oh, wow, like this is truly a plus defender. Hunter, 
of course, before the meniscus and all of that stuff, he was showing like elite wing defense. Cam Reddish is a huge guy. He's not great on defense, but he's not, he should not be a problem defensively given his talent, given his size, whatever. Even a guy like Huerter, who I think solid defensively because he's huge. He's not the fleetest of foot, but like he's huge. Collins, you know, Capel, like these guys should be able to muster up league average defense with this group and it just has not been there the perimeter defense mm. has been just basically a turnstile and you know sorry guys like Collins and Capella have not done a decent enough job cleaning it up on the back end and so it's just compounded itself to be just awful and just watching it with the eye test they don't look like they're giving it their all. We can harken back to some of the statements that Trey Young made where he's like, I mean, after you play in the freaking conference finals and you know what the intensity of those games are, you know, I don't know, playing against Portland literally on a Tuesday night just doesn't feel like life or death to us, right? But it's getting to the point where, you know, they started the season 14 and 20 last year, fired the freaking coach. They're 16 and 20 now, okay? And the answer can't be to fire Nate McMillan. Oh, it could. <laughs> Can it after they just signed this guy to a new deal? Like, I, I don't know. I, I'm running out of answers for these guys. Well, you know, last year was a big question of, did we underestimate some of these defenders and they're just like willingness to compete on defense? And the answer we're getting is, maybe we didn't. <laughs> maybe, maybe us us and Travis Schlenk, maybe we're kind of looking at this roster sideways. And as you're saying, Waz, it's not for lack of ability. It's just like they are not They're invested not or locked it. in or connected at all defensively. Do you know who didn't overestimate them? Uh. This guy. <laughs> Armchair GM Justin Verrier. I, I wish we had the time to cut back to our preseason podcast where I was casting doubt on the Hawks' resurgence. I think, I mean, Trey Young is incredible. Like, just what an yeah. absolute spectacular run literally carrying the entire team up in Portland the other night. Um, but yeah, it's been disappointing. I guess if you wanted to be an optimist and you wanted to cast a shred of doubt on some of the pessimism, like who is actually playing for this team now? I couldn't watch more than the first quarter of that Blazers game because there just wasn't anybody out there. Like, I'm glad that Lance Stevenson is no longer getting minutes, but like they haven't necessarily upgraded to the point where like they're starting even like guys you recognize. So um, is, is like their hope there where you could get the full complement of guys that they can turn this around? I think, look, I think having a full complement of guys would go a long way for this team, right? But again, this is... This is sports. This is the NBA. This is, you know, a war of attrition with 82 games. Like, this is kind of what the reality is of modern basketball. Also, I think it needs to be said, as great as Trey Young has been, I wonder how much his ownership of the offense has to do with guys not wanting to do shit on the other end. Because I think about a flip side of this and it's not a one-to-one -one comparison, but I do think about Golden State and the level of buy-in that they get from guys and the fact that Steph does not dominate the ball. He's mm. one of the greatest players, offensive players. He's easily one of the 10 best offensive players in the history of this fucking sport. And he does not dominate the ball. Granted, they have a generational guy on defense, Draymond Green, who's the best defensive player of his generation, on defense, quarterbacking, and coaching that thing. But I wonder how much the best guy not being ball dominant and the ownership that people like Poole and Wiggins and others 
get to have within the offense, even a GP2. You know, like, I wonder how much ownership they get to have in the offense, how much that translates into the level of effort they're willing to give on the other end, whereas the Hawks, nobody gets to do anything but Trey Young. And I'm just, you know, just as somebody who thinks about how teams come together and and gel and, like, what it means to have buy-in on defense. Why should I have buy-in on defense when I don't get to do anything else? You know, I wonder how much that affects the defensive end. It's a great reminder of the power of knowing who you are bringing into your team because the Hawks have scouted talent magnificently well. They've gotten a lot of really good NBA players, but you're bringing in Bogdan Bogdanovich, who was kind of buried in Sacramento and wasn't allowed to do everything he could do. You got a guy like Cam Reddish, who was very famously like kind of in the shadow of another star. You've even got a guy like Clint Capella, who has played with someone who dominates the ball before and controls the offense and James Harden. But maybe that means he was hoping to do a little more this time. And so like just psychologically, the the people you are bringing into your team you have to know who they are and what they want and on some level how they're going to react to a situation like this over time and whether they are going to buy into this stuff beyond one magical kind of season. You know, there's this defensive specialist I know who is available for work and he plays technically for a team that could use a couple aggregated parts and picks in order to potentially change the face of their team to be a little bit more defensively inclined. So I ask you guys... Ben Simmons, is he the answer in Atlanta? Because on the one hand, like, yeah, Trey and him might clash over like who is running the show and handling the ball. On the other hand, maybe Trey like grazes into his Steph Curry years where he's playing more off the ball. Maybe he doesn't do it as much as Steph, but he adds that element more to it, which is kind of what he was already kind of working in with Bogdan being there and all these other guys being there to begin with. Does it make the team, does the team make more sense with a Ben Simmons and some of these other guys that are jostling for control? You know, I wonder, um, because if if it doesn't involve sending John Collins over there, uh, the redundancies as far as straight-up non-shooters, and not that John Collins is a non-shooter, he's not, but I think he's best as a rim runner. There's no freaking con- contending that fact. Where it's like, am I playing Simmons, Collins, and Capella, right? And I think at that point, it's like Trey Young is so genius at offense. We're going to muster enough offense and defense becomes the calling card. I don't know. Mm. Um, I think Ben Simmons, what he does defensively would unlock a bunch. And of course, I'd want to see Collins at the five, Simmons at the four, and, you know, whatever wing depth they could muster after that trade, obviously Cam Reddish would probably be a part of that deal. <laughs> Who knows? I don't know. You yeah. know what I'm saying? Um, I think Trey Young and Simmons actually do make sense with each other as a pick and roll pair um, for both of those guys. I think there is some complementary aspects to their games. I think how the rest of the roster is constructed around those two guys, two guys who need the ball to thrive, or traditionally that's been the case. You know, I think you got to be precise about how you construct that thing, but I wouldn't be opposed to a similar thing. But again, is Philadelphia going to be satisfied with like, Cam Reddish in a trillion future first? It would probably have to be Collins. Collins would probably have to be mm. the centerpiece. And then I guess you have to have the conversation of Collins and, and Embiid. Is that like to, to build 
through the front court with two bigs. Is that the way you want to go? Like it, it could be like Collins and Reddish. I, I don't know the contracts off the top of my head, but that could be the start of something. I, I, I kind of doubt John Collins is on the list of like the 20 guys the Sixers want to <laughs> yeah. play for. All, all due respect to John Collins, who yeah. I think is very good, but not quite what they're in I the I love John for. Collins. I don't think it's what the Sixers are trying to do. And yeah. again, especially when you consider the guy who's really fucking up this season, Tobias Harris, plays John Collins' position. You know, like he's ba- he's a four at this point. You yeah, know, right. I, I, I just don't, I don't know. I kind of forgot about Tobias Harris, honestly. So it would have to be a three-way trade. Yeah. I mean, Philly's ready to get rid of Tobias Harris. They were booing him the other night, <laughs> yeah, so it's totally that's, fine. That's quite obvious. Um, I want to talk about the Cavs, though, quickly before we turn the page there because they're still beyond like what anyone had expected uh, hanging in here. They were in the top four just a couple of days ago, but they've sunk to 21 and 17 here. They're sixth right now. I'm very high on the Cavs. I think like few things really surprise you throughout the course of a regular season. And the bulls and the Cavs are two of the biggest surprises we've had in like the past five to 10 years. Um, I'm a little worried though, because guys are dropping like flies now, like Isaac Okoro is out for a couple of weeks. And obviously Ricky Rubio has the torn ACL. And I think it's a bad sign whenever a team convinces themselves that Rajon Rondo is the answer. Like it feels like we've been doing this for eight years now and he's only really made good on it once during the NBA bubble. And I don't think we are now two years removed from that, that that can still happen. Uh, you, you know what will make concerned. you trade for Rajon Rondo, though, is when you have to start multiple games with Kevin Pangos as basically your entire guard rotation. <laughs> oh, they were already getting guys out there the other night uh, in, in their loss of the Grizzlies where I'm just like, who? So yeah. they are also experiencing some COVID losses. But um, overall, like when the dust clears, I guess I'm, I'm not sure if they're a top 16. They're a playoff team for sure. Um, Rob, what do you think? Well, the big thing is they got Darius Garland back. And yep. as long as he's out there with their bigs, they're really competitive. That's yep. That's exactly um, what came to mind, Rob, is that once Garland's out there and <laughs> Mobley and Jared Allen are anchoring that damn defense, that's winning formula because, yep. you know, it's not just that Garland has become that three-level score, right, where I got the pull-up three on your ass, I got to pull up the mid-range on you, and I get to the cup. And now, you know, you can't shade defenders around me because I'm going to find dudes now, right? And so he's making the job of the ancillary pieces so much easier because he is setting them up so expertly. You know, when you're deep, like, Mobley is straight up just a fucking plus defender. Like, he's just played like somebody who's all, all defense as a rookie. That that's crazy. Mm-hmm. So when when the, that's the foundation of what you got as a sixty, like two straight up plus big defenders, especially in the regular season where not everybody is 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 employing the Dames, the Kyries, the Stephs that destroy these conservative pick and roll type of defenses where it's like so oriented about parking yourself in the paint, right? Like the type of guards that can exploit those type of defenses in the regular season when you're not playing that on a night-to-night basis where it's like, all right, Cole Anthony, try to beat us. Look, I I like what they got. I think they definitely, once, you know, as long as Garland is able to stay, if their three best guys are able to stay healthy, I think they're going to be straight. Well, and if we want to go back to this game that Justin has created for us of these two possibilities, you know, the Cavs finishing in the top six, 
or the Hawks missing the playoffs. Only one think, can happen. That's how the world works. <laughs> well, see, I was going to say, I think both are pretty high probability outcomes at this point yeah. because mm-hmm. the Hawks the Hawks not only have to you know, leapfrog the Knicks, leapfrog one of these other four teams that are already in a playoff spot, then they have to win some play-in games just, yeah. just to get in the mix. There's so many trap nice doors here good. for the Hawks that I, I just don't believe in them versus who are the Cavs, like who's their real competition for this spot? Because I think there are scenarios in which if Joel Embiid has any more injuries this season, the Sixers aren't even a lock for five. So there's a little mm. cushion for the Cavs to even move up potentially. So unless you're really sold on like the Hornets or the Wizards, I, I just don't see a lot of serious competition there. Hold that thought because I want to flip to our next question, our last question here, which is name one team, good or bad, that could surprise you the rest of the way. How about the Toronto Raptors? The Fred oh. Van Vliet experience is back. My guy is putting up 30 a night. Is looking like an all-star lock at this point. Uh, and it just seems like they've found something. It's like they, they've gone to this uh, lineup where it, everybody is like six, eight and long as hell, except for Fred Van Vliet. And like, it just works uh, defensively. They're a bit compromised. Uh, and it's weird to say that the Raptors aren't making their bones on defense or even very good on defense, but it's kind of incredible. Siakam came back and he's really good. Uh, so they're a team that I could see. They're now 500 exactly with the top 10 offense. Um, I could see them having a second half resurgence. And as I also predicted in the preseason, I think that they're just their competence and just their overall talent that they have in their team can get them past. I seem like the Hornets and the Wizards and maybe even the Celtics who all have like something going for them, but I think they're flawed in certain ways or maybe just like too young or dare I say green uh, in order to get over the hump into the top six. We we are in total alignment on the Raptors second half surge. It is coming. Beautiful. Prepare yourself. Uh, I think the only question is like, wh- at what point are we going to put ourselves out on the limb and say they're going to be the eighth seed in the playoffs? Like, can they show us that to put us over the top on that kind of prediction? We'll have to see. But I'm with you. The smaller lineup has looked great, just kind of juggling around some of what they're doing in terms of starting has worked really well for them. They're an interesting case, and I think a team that has proven something during this stretch of kind of dead and mostly useless basketball of, of you know interchangeable replacement players because last season, their their whole campaign was, was sidetracked by their experience with COVID and guys getting knocked out of the lineup. It just obliterated their season last year in Tampa. Yeah, partying in Tampa. <laughs> this is what happens when you go to Tampa. You get obliterated. Um, but this season, they ha- they've had a lot of guys out of the lineup. I think only three teams have had more players lost, more player games lost so far to COVID-related uh, absences so far. And they survived it. They've gotten guys back. They're starting to look more fully formed again. And at this point, they're playing 500 basketball for the season. They have a better point differential than teams like the Lakers and Clippers. I'm, I'm starting to see some some cause for optimism with this group. Yeah, and I think what the Raptors show is that, like, institutional stability and competency matter, right? Like, the dude at the tippy top is as competent as he gets in the league. And Nick Nurse continues to prove himself to be, like, straight up one of the best coaches in the NBA. It's not just that he's coaching guys up. He's just always willing to try shit. Like, you guys are talking about... This basically Fred Van Vliet's AI-centric type of lineups, right? Where it's like we just throw a bunch of defenders out there and Fred Van Vliet will lead us home. This absurd as that sounds like, but Nick Ernst is one of the only guys in the league who's gonna try this. 
right? And he's going to convince his guys that this is something, this is an avenue worthwhile trying to pursue. Uh, so I think that's what this speaks to is like these guys organizationally are so buttoned up, you know, from top to bottom that you can get these results in a wacky ass season like this where like nobody comes in the season thinking like, you know, Pascal Siakam and Fred Van Vliet are the keys to 500 NBA basketball. Like, really? <laughs> like, that just seems absurd as, as a concept. But, you know, as somebody who's president of Fred, Fred Van Vliet fan club, like, it's it's dope to see. And I think, you know, if anybody can exploit the just idiocy that we see on a night-to-night basis from regular season NBA teams uh, is definitely the Raptors. So, I, I, you know, I wouldn't be shocked if they finished, you know, with 44 wins um, throughout the season. I wouldn't be surprised. I think, you know, no, the, another team that we got here is the Heat, which I think they're just like a decently healthy stretch from, you know, asserting themselves as a serious Mm-hmm. The most serious non-Brooklyn Milwaukee team in the league, but they just Jimmy Butler just went out again with a freaking ankle, right? Bam's been gone forever now. Who knows when he's even coming back? I think once they get their group together, this is gonna be the team that we see take the hell off. Yeah, the Heat seem like a sleeping giant here. I mean, as much as I love Omer Yurtseven and what he's contributing of late, <laughs> it just seems like there's a lot of teams that have fallen back as a result of some of their COVID absences and like what they've had to do juggling lineups with the heat are just like incredible still. It's like they, they actually gave the Warriors a pretty firm push the other night. And and I looked at the lineup. I'm like, I don't know who any of these people are except for Tyler hero. So like they have to be feeling pretty good, I guess, unless those, uh, the Jimmy, the bam injuries end up being long-term. Um, Rob, anybody else you want to mention here? No one in particular. I think the Raptors are the big one. I think we're kind of at the point in the season where most of the standings are feeling pretty stable. We have a good idea of who the contenders are. We have a lot of these teams in the middle in the middle that haven't really shown us enough to be optimistic in them. Uh, so the, the big question is going to be for these teams like the Hawks. Can they figure mm. something out? Can these bubble teams, is there anyone in that group who can go from fringe play-in team to knocking on the door of a sixth seed in their conference. That's kind of the area of the standings I'm looking at over these next couple weeks. The crazy thing about some of these middling teams like, you know, the Mavs who continue to show like when they're making shots, they're a pretty tough team to deal with. I think in like if if Luka would just like a rung worse than amazing that he's shown, in the past that would have been the type of team who's like, Man, this might be fire sale time. Like, straight mm-hmm. up, like, let's just start this rebuild. This kid is still 22 years old. Like, let's just get started on a freaking rebuild, right? Like, we thought we were going to be a team that mattered. Let's fire sale. I just think we don't see that anymore. So it's tough to imagine, like, the the, the beneficiaries of that type of fire sale would be, you know, teams like the Lakers thirsty to improve or teams like, you know, the Hawks thirsty improved back in the days, they would have been the beneficiary of this. But like, because Denver's just like, we can't blow this up. <laughs> we, we just put a bunch of money into Michael Porter Jr. Eventually Jamal Murray's going to come back. Like these teams can't blow up what they're doing. They can't sell off their spare parts. So I think that's another thing that we're seeing of just like this 
logjam of mediocrity in the middle. It's like nobody really feels the impetus to be like, let's start this thing all over. I mean, Portland is on watch, I think. They're teetering mm. at this point. Um, and but with them being even worse be surprising? Like, they've already been so bad this season. I guess trading CJ McCollum at some point could be something that could happen. Yeah, if you're assuming that you're going to rebuild around Dame or Dame is going to be hurt for the remainder of the year, why not just pack it in, play for the pick, and uh, like kind of reboot or reset going into next season? Um, which actually brings me to another team I wanted to mention just briefly, but the Sacramento Kings are firmly, firmly, and by that I mean half a game in the play-in tournament field right now, and I just get the vibe that they're going to do something really fucking stupid. Like, they're... <laughs> a clear example of a team that is so thrilled to be where they are and just the fact that they are relevant and they have enough distance well, from let, the, let me let me stop uh, you alvin yeah. alvin gentry doesn't seem super thrilled to be where he is he does that every night i think people are just gonna have to realize that he calls every game that they lose an embarrassment and uh the worst <laughs> thing he's ever done he's had a hundred worst games he's ever coached before <laughs> And if anyone ever bothered to care about the teams that he coached, then uh, people would realize this by now. But like, I do think like there's enough feistiness and enough there and enough motivation that like we're we're teetering on a Ben Simmons esque trade where it's like, yeah, let's go for this right now. Although I have to mention with the Ben Simmons uh, standoff or wherever we are in this hostage crisis, uh, it's just it's really a damning sign when we come up with new teams that could potentially trade for Simmons and we still can't find a fit. Like we were talking about the Hawks earlier and it still wasn't quite right. And like the Cavs are, are a team. I think people have mentioned is like, Oh, they're ready to take the next step. But then it's like, Oh, they have five big men. It's like, I, we're at like 25 teams at this point where it's just like a complete no go. <laughs> so it's just like, this is never happening. Um, speaking of which, just to end this soliloquy here, uh, last team I would mention the Philadelphia 76ers, and in particular, Joel Embiid, who is absolutely fucking dominating yeah. of late. Embiid is on a run here where you're just like marveling at like just how a big man can move the way he does. He has very much like the defensive tackle who's like 350 pounds, but can like right. chase guys down in the open field sort of vibes here where he's like Euro stepping everybody and bringing the ball up the court. And maybe this is a, another podcast, but like. Holy shit, if they just get him one to two more good players, the team could be very good. Yeah, it's a good thing Daryl Morey has four years to figure out how to <laughs> make the team as good as possible as Joel Embiid plays like Wilt Chamberlain on a night-to-night -night basis, right? Like, it's a good thing they have all the time in the world with a guy who doesn't have a shady injury past at all. Like, they have all the time in the world to figure out how to maximize what's going on with one of the best bigs we've all ever seen. But no, yeah, it's, you know, and I got to give him his props to Joel Embiid in the sense that as much as we talk about superstars and waxing, waning effort levels on different teams, like on a team this messy and discombobulated, Joel Embiid coming out and be like, no, I'm just going to fucking kill people every single night. I got to give him his props for that. And I know some people might say, well, that's what he gets paid the big bucks for, whatever. Say what you want. He's doing it. He's and he's executing it um, on a very high level to the point where, you know, it shines a microscope on everybody around him. <laughs> it's like, all right, you can say what you want about the results, but this guy is clearly excellent. So everybody else is just like, all right, are you guys holding up your end of the bargain? And that goes from his GM to his coach 
to his co-star, allegedly, Tobias Harris, you know, to everybody on down. So you got to give Joel his props for delivering. Tobias Harris just taking strays <laughs> all over this podcast but, today. But hold on, Rob Mahoney. It's 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 about damn time, though. You know, um, this is the, this guy is part of the reason they ran Jimmy Butler out of town. Yeah. You know, he's part of the reason why they're in the position that they're in. They've committed maximum money to a dude who's like 18 points a game and literally nothing else. Mm. That's crazy. <laughs> That's crazy. He doesn't do anything else for your team besides the occasional mid-range pull-up. He's not some plus defender. He's not killing it on the boards for you. It's not like you could be like, all right, go guard LeBron. Go guard KD. Go guard Paul George. Like, he doesn't do any of this for you. He's not shooting threes at volume. Like, he's... What? And nor is he the guy who's like, okay, in this difficult playoff situation, can you read this three on two and you know successfully navigate it to find the open man? Like, no, hell no. There's just issues all over with him. And it, as you hit Waz, like Embiid is so good that everyone else is put on notice. Everyone else's flaws are magnified because they they just have to be a little bit better and they could be real contenders. They could be a really, really great team. They just don't have it right now. They're they're still one or two players away. They're still a shadow of Ben Simmons away. Four years. Uh, we got four years to do to this, be. Rob. Yeah. yeah. In four years, and Embiid's <laughs> knees are going to look like Wilt Chamberlain's. He's going to be wearing like the volleyball pads this and whatnot. This might take four years to perfect, y'all. <laughs> All right. Uh, we'll be back sooner than four years. We'll be back on our regular Wednesday edition. Um, until then, thank you to Isaiah Blakely on production. We'll see you next time.